0: Welcome to Power Not Pity, a podcast all about amplifying and preserving the voices of black and brown disabled people. With every episode, I aim to dismantle ableism by creating a safe space for my interviewees to share the mic. There is a dire lack of media about disabled people, and those of us who are multiply marginalized are practically erased from the public sphere altogether. My next guest knows a thing or two about getting her voice heard. I invited Ade Raphael to join me in the studio and we had a blast talking about our collective blackness and the strength that is born out of struggle. Most of Ade's life has been dedicated to creating and teaching the arts as a musician, a visual artist, and an all-around sound designer. Her diagnosis happened in 2015, but she knew long before, which is a problem that many disabled people find themselves dealing with. The reality of being discriminated against is even harder to consider when racial biases come into the picture.
1: Thank you for having me, Prince.
0: You're welcome. (laughs) You are so welcome. Could you tell us about the beginning? Like, how did your diagnosis happen? You said, you mentioned that you had cancer for a year before you were diagnosed.
1: Yeah. I'd ended up leaving New York City at the end of 2013 to move to Los Angeles I was living there for a few months
0: you noticed uh... a little
1: pressure building up in my ear just like I'm used to having like air aches and having to equalize a lot in general so I didn't think too much about it until like every time I blew my nose or like hawked up a loogie there was blood in it and then there's like more and more I knew something wasn't right. I, like, guessed cancer. Um, Anyway, flash forward to 2014 or 2015, the beginning of 2015. I ended up moving to Denver with my then-partner. And at this point, you know, I'd been coughing up blood for, like, a few months at this time. Um, Didn't have health insurance or anything like that. Couldn't afford it or get it because of like the arbitrary (laughs) places I was like making a little too much money to be on medicare and a little too little money to afford anything and so I ended up you know going to a clinic here or there meeting a doctor they gave me like antibiotics first time and then the second time I like ended up fainting going to the hospital you know doctors took scans of my lungs They were like, yeah, you know, uh, you have like a couple little lumps in your lungs, um, but you used to smoke, so it's probably just from that. You're young, you're healthy. You know, (laughs) they kept saying like, you're young, you're fit, like there's nothing to worry about. Come back in, I think they said like come back in like six months when I got that scan. And I had just started working at this spot, so I had a lot of stuff to figure out. Got on like Medicaid, ended up at some point getting like a huge like my lymph node in my neck grew to about the size of like a small grapefruit or a really oh, wow. big orange yeah so my neck was like like I couldn't look straight my head was always tilted to the side people would say they didn't notice and I was like are you are you blind like I, I literally look like I have something just like stuck in my neck. like there's a little baby about to be birthed out of my neck. Oh. It, was, it was bad, um, and I was in pain constantly. Uh, so then after a couple more misdiagnoses, I ended up having to get off of Medi- Medicaid, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, Medicaid, I had to get off of it to be able to see this doctor Mm -hmm. that was actually in the same office as a doctor who had misdiagnosed me like two weeks beforehand. This other doctor was recommended, but they didn't take Medicaid patients or anything like that, so I had to pay out of pocket.
0: I'd like to stop here to explain another phenomenon that a lot of disabled people face, the liminal space that is coverage under Medicaid. Either you receive services but live under the poverty line or you find work and don't receive services at all because you quote-unquote make too much money.
1: And then he took one look at me and he was like, oh, you have cancer. Like, we're going to do a biopsy. We think it's lymphoma, you know, like mm-hmm. the more treatable lymphoma. I was like, okay. Because you're young. Because I'm fit. young and i Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I don't really, I wasn't really a smoker. So nasopharyngeal carcinoma, you find it more in South Southeast Asia and whatnot so Mm. even though there are tons of cases in the U.S. they're just thinking what are the chances yeah so I ended up getting diagnosed that July and started chemotherapy the end of July Mm. and that was nine nine weeks three cycles chemo every three weeks like a pretty heavy dose that was pretty you know bad lost my hair lost a lot of taste was nauseous all the things you expect with chemo I felt terrible all the time but then it really ramped up after the radiation started to set in you know it doesn't make you want to throw up immediately like chemo does but it's basically like getting burned nonstop. and mm-hmm. so like eventually I couldn't eat anymore I couldn't like I was in constant pain for one but then I literally like couldn't swallow anything for weeks and yeah and then I ended up falling out like the night before Thanksgiving you know everybody's cooking you know we're cooking all this food my mom was there my wife at the time I got married in the middle of all this and they're cooking food and then I just like felt terrible I felt like death was knocking tried to get up literally couldn't feel my body couldn't move and just fell and then like all that white light stuff that they talk about it was coming, like wow. the whole room, everything. My vision was just shaking, 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 shaking. And then, like, this white, you know, was just creeping in, creeping in. And it's just like shimmering, you know. And I was, I knew I was going to die. But then I had this, like, thought of, like, how traumatizing it would be to everybody in the building. Because I was in the hallway of my apartment building. Like, we tried to get me downstairs to get to the hospital, mm-hmm. I could only make it right out the door. Like being dragged essentially right out the door. And then in that moment, I was like, I can't, I can't die here. That would be just so embarrassing. I'll never, like, that was the thought. Like, it would be so embarrassing. And then the white light went away and, like, the wow. shimmering stopped. I still felt terrible. You know, I still wished I was dead. And then they, like, That's brought a me to testament the hospital. To yeah. And making yeah. it through that night was another testament because they didn't want to put me in an inpatient. They just took me to the emergency room. They didn't want to give me the pain. Like, we left quickly, you know, like, ambulance came. The the EMS folks, they took me down the ambulance. Like, we didn't have time to get all my meds and everything like that. And they also wouldn't let my family go get my meds to give me my medic, the pain meds that my oncologist prescribed for me. They wouldn't let me go get it or my parents go get it. They wouldn't give it to me. I was getting treatment at that same hospital. It was like a shit show, and then they came down to make sure that we wouldn't sue them, <laughs> oh. essentially, <laughs> and put me an in inpatient. Being being just doped up, all kinds of anti nausea stuff. Like I couldn't swallow, so everything was intravenous or enema, and it was just like your body is not your own at that point. You know, I couldn't even change in my own room because like. You know, I personally was like, I don't give a fuck. They have their finger on my butt. Like, <laughs> if, if they see me naked, they see me naked. Right. You know, like I feel like they should understand. But the folks that I were with, yeah. that were like there with me, were just kind of like, could you please just
0: consider yeah. that this is a human being, mm-hmm. and not a piece of flesh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot of what you said is like exactly what I've experienced. The over medication or the under medication, Mm -hmm. it's never like the right amount, right? Right. And you're there in pain and you don't have your own agency and like you are being constantly scrutinized at the same time. So, you know, Mm -hmm. Nina Simone has that song to be young, gifted and black. Mm -hmm. It feels like for me And for us, it's like to be young, sick, and black. Listen closely here. This is where she explains a concept that is extremely important to understanding why black disabled people in particular face alienation in medical
1: spaces. Historically, black bodies have been used in Mm -hmm. ways that are against the guidelines set forth in medical fields. Like, Mm -hmm. we can go all the way back um, to, you know, stuff we read in the books, but I could go to my own story. At some point, they say, You're not going to be able to eat. So, what we're going to do is we're going to give you a feeding tube. And that's supposed to help. You know, when I was not able to swallow anything, I was supposed to be able to use this feeding tube, right? Mm-hmm. The doctor who put the feeding tube in me, I'll never forget him. He creeped me out so much, you know, like just seemed like a bit like, a bit like a sociopath, but like mm-hmm. also a heavy smell of alcohol on his breath. Like, I'll wow. never forget it. It was like very handsy. When somebody puts the feeding tube in you, they're supposed to go just like right next to your belly button, put it in. It's supposed to be a real simple process. A couple hours, you know, you're good. This MFR put it like basically right, like right here, like above yeah. my belly button in the middle of my abdomen. To try and put it into my stomach that has never been done to me I see it as like this person saw this young black body and you know thinking all, all these things about oh pain tolerance da 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 you know I don't know what was going through this person's mind but mm-hmm. he said you know I just thought I'd try this. he literally said those words I thought I'd just try this so I'm in mean, excruciating pain after the procedure it's not yeah. supposed to be there apparently because of the angle he put it in and it wrapped around my stomach twisted my stomach all the way around (laughs) and was like holding it there for hours and so while he went to do other patients treat other patients right after doing this for me I I was in the OR for like a solid three four hours they had to keep giving me certain pain meds they couldn't give me the good ones because I had to go back in Mm -hmm. for surgery and like some of them act as blood thinners and whatnot so like I was very limited in terms of my pain management. Mm-hmm. So I'm in pain for these hours. Finally, see the person. This is after just so much BS. Finally, see this person, and then this this person has a, they had the the mind to go and say, "I work out. You know, I mean, like I'm I'm strong. I'm physically okay. strong, right? Okay. Not necessarily fit, but strong." It's like, oh, it's because you know. You have these abs, your abdomen, like you're just, you're too strong, so blah, blah, you're pulling on it. Da, da, da. I'm just like, so he's there blaming my own physiology for the pain that I'm in because he decided to do this wrong. Cut, puts it in right. After all that, it ended up infecting my stomach. Hence the reason I ended up in the hospital again. Again, because like I was getting zero nutrients and I couldn't and I was constantly throwing up and I had to be on antibiotics all the time. And that's not like, Eating, not yeah. eating, and being yeah. on antibiotics is literally the worst thing you could do. That's black bodies in medicine. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's black bodies. That's like pretty much the experience I've found so far of disabled people of color. Right. Like we all have the same experience of being mistreated. And- this is so important to me. I lie awake at night sometimes thinking about this very phenomenon. Why does the experience of blackness within medical spaces hold so much pain and intolerance?
1: I think that's like such a dense, dense knot of reasons. Much in parallel to like why people of color are mistreated when they go grocery shopping. You know what I mean? Why they're mistreated... As students in school, you know, why they're treated differently by the police, like it's the same idea of, you know, people, it's not a blanket statement of like disposability because it's wrapped up in these ideas of you can take more, you're going to do more, there's something different, so different about you, like, you know, whether it's your strength or whether it's your, you know, your mental space, whether it's your your attitude, you know, whether it's like all these things, people will read into it and get, you know, upset. So I couldn't I couldn't be too firm about advocating for myself. Whenever I started to, I could see it in people's eyes and start to shut down. You think you know so much and like, I know enough. (laughs) You know, I knew enough to know before I was diagnosed and I had to sit through like multiple misdiagnoses. One of the people who misdiagnosed me, like, called me and it'd be like, oh, it's reactivated mono, just go see your primary physician. And I was like, okay, what can I do in the click? Call back there, it was their, um, their nurse practitioner answered the phone somehow within 10 minutes, like, oh, said me the, the exact same thing that the doctor said. And then I, I was like, so what can I do in the meat click? So we know now that black
0: disabled people often do not have it easy when they go to the doctor. This is a pivotal moment in the interview where I ask a question that not many people ever hear. Do you consider yourself disabled?
1: Mmm, yes.
0: After all that?
1: After all that, I consider myself disabled. Do I feel like I can justly and officially make that claim? No. No. I couldn't even claim disability because of, like, once again, arbitrary laws about who's allowed to claim disability. You have to have been working and you have to have been doing these things for X amount of time. I was working when I got the diagnosis, but it just wasn't long enough.
0: Life is beyond hard when you're invisibly disabled. If you look well enough to be healthy, but no one is able to grasp that you are struggling with chronic illness... It's nothing but paradoxical that she has to succumb to working while being unable to because of her cancer. Like she said earlier, she's physically strong. She's 5'10 with abs. She is not the conventional image of what a disabled person looks like to society. But she suffers just the same.
1: In my mind, the world is not going to... The world is going to see me like... I. On the outside I look like very healthy. I keep it together as much as possible. But I wake up pretty much every day in pain. I have to weigh whether or not like I'm feeling chronic fatigue or I'm tired. I have to weigh whether or not to like do the thing that I need to do because I'm gonna need to take the time to rest. But I also need to get things done because like Mm -hmm. the world does not see me as disabled. The world doesn't have time for that. For a long time, I was horizontal. For a long time, I was unconscious for, or not like semi-conscious, doped up, you know, taking my medication every single hour on the hour, 24 hours a day type Mm -hmm. stuff, you know. So I never slept, but I was never upright post that first treatment. And even then, it was like, as soon as I started to gain the slightest bit of strength, the expectations of you fly through the roof. I put so much expectation on myself and I feel so much is placed on me that it's so hard to go and say, like, I'm disabled, I don't have a sticker, I don't park in the handicapped parking, but goddammit, there are days I mean to park in the yeah. goddamn yeah. handicapped parking. And it's and it's one of those things where it's like, there I have a lot especially the more time passes since the cancer's been under control and whatnot. Mm-hmm the more time passes the more i have a chance to recover and i can feel it and so you know like i wanna feel that strength and i wanna yeah. go out and do things and i'll do things and i'll be active in this way i'm like oh i'm all better yeah. in those moments i i forget and it's the scariest thing to be reminded yes i do consider myself living with a disability mm-hmm. my brain wants to be like this is not going to be forever mm-hmm. but at the same time being like this is likely going to be forever you just have to figure out how to make it easier for you how to like make life work to help you a little bit more as opposed to you having to work just to exist Mm -hmm. post all that uh, you know the case was supposed to be terminal it came back a second time had to get immunotherapy with the clinical trial the very next year um two years out from that Mm -hmm. and so it's like you know the knowledge a could always come back and i could always have to do this treatment or a kind of treatment that's going to really mash up my body and that in itself is enough just kind of like make things a little bit more difficult for me
0: we'll be right back after the break this is just one of a day's fantastic singles it's called evernote
1: trying to come back to life that's I call it coming back to life sure. like in that in this time of me trying to come back to life but right after needing to drink water every five minutes I'm going to try to go out go to a restaurant to have dinner and you think you could have non-stop water at a restaurant it's just not that easy yeah. you can even tell them hey I'm a recovering cancer patient I need non-stop water they'll forget you They won't bring it to you. They'll tell you they only have one bottle. Some places may try to keep me from bringing my own water bottle in. You know what I mean? I go to the club, dance. I couldn't do, like, real exercise. I could, like, go to the the club, bounce the music a little bit, like, move, start to almost sweat, start to almost breathe hard, be exhausted, (laughs) feel like I'm going to pass out, (laughs) need my water right next to me, but they'll be like, no, you There can't be anything in it when you go in. There can't be anything in it when you go out. There's no water fountains in here. Mm -hmm. Or the water fountains are in this place that's, like, hard to get to. Yeah. You know, I always feel awkward asking the bartender for water. Most bars won't fill up your bottle of water with their water. It's, like, a a lot of rules for something as simple as water.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's what ableism does you know yeah. like it makes life harder for disabled people and it puts us in a place where okay so either we're just sick enough or we have to claim that we're like super sick and so angry that you are not able to you <laughs> hydrate yourself as a human being that's right. like water is a right not a privilege
1: I mean, there's that. There's, like, you having to make the claim. And then there's the response of whoever it is you're making that claim to. Yeah. Just the other day, I was having dinner at a restaurant with some folks. And the waiter... Essentially, I told the waiter the same thing. Hey, I need... Would it be okay if we had two of these glass bottles of water out here? Like, it's from the tab. Like, you know, do we have two? And they're like, oh, we're limited in the amount of water that we have. I was like, okay, I'm only asking because... Yeah, you know, I'm like, I'm gonna tell him, I'm gonna give him the cancer. I'm and a cancer you patient. And then you have
0: to disclose that. Yeah,
1: I have to be like, this is my medical history. The way I look, people just say, oh, like the response I always get is, oh, it must not have been like, there's not really good cancer, but it's like, oh, it must not have been that bad, like, because I've young. been, I've been, and I've been spending so much time on like focusing on my health and like yeah. my recovery that I look. And, and and I I don't appear to be someone who was on their deathbed a year and a half ago or two years yeah. ago, you know? Yeah. Like that's what not... does that
0: even look like?
1: Right. Yeah. For me it was it was in bed a lot, feeling yeah. like death. But then, so then I, I tell this person that and then and oftentimes people go, Oh, I'm you know, sorry to hear that or like they'll say, Oh had You know, they'll often do the congratulatory, like, oh, hat, oh, congrats. And I'm like, well, I still get, you know, hit with radioactive fluid every six months to make sure that there's nothing in me. um, And I can't get the scans that my body's telling me that I really should get. This cancer started in the back of my face and it came back in my lungs. Or Mm -hmm. it spread to my lungs, got rid of it above my chest, came back in my lungs a second time. And so they're only scanning for that second. Occurrence not bothering. They're saying it's unlikely that it'll come back in the first place Mm because you're irradiated. Yeah, so there's like all that happening. Ah, This is a long story, but I told this guy that and then his response goes, his response is, oh, yeah, I had a friend who died of cancer too. It was real bad. They didn't make it. And like doing it in this way that really felt like he was trying to guilt me for making that request and saying Mm -hmm. that I had cancer. And it's like all caught up in this like, To me, this narrative of, oh, you look and seem okay, so it must, on the inside, you know, it must be all right, it must not be that bad, and like, how dare you, you know, like, disrespect, you know, people who didn't make it. There's always that, like, concern and that worry, and and cancer (laughs) is something that affects everybody. Literally, everybody knows somebody or has had it themselves. You never know how someone's gonna respond.
0: I live my life under this uh, mantra. They don't get it until they get it.
1: Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like
0: you have to make it personal for people, and it's it's silly mm-hmm. because we have to do it. Right. We have to do that work as disabled people, especially disabled people of color. Right. We have to do that work to tell people, just like you disclose your status. Right. With that waitress who just couldn't understand that you need two glasses of water that's all it is yeah like, when I hear that I had a friend I think about when people say oh I have a black friend I mm-hmm. understand racism mm-hmm. you know it's like there are intersections you know right. like part of what people don't understand is that there are intersections at the corner of ableism and racism yes. there are intersections between the concept of ableism and sexism it's okay to be different it's okay to move through the world differently. Right. One thing I want to ask you is, like, what do you think we could do to dismantle ableism?
1: In this day and age, we're sort of uh, asked to make individual choices and individual gestures to heal the world and heal problems caused by this system that we're all wrapped up in, Mm -hmm. um, while also sort of looking out for our own selves. So I don't think it's as simple as if you see someone who's like struggling, like help them with their groceries. To me, like something that would be even great is like maybe allow people who work part time to receive benefits. Because I'm thinking back when I started working again, um, I started working at this dispensary in Denver. And this is also part of why I realized I can't do like nine to five work. I could only work about 30 hours a week before I got sick. And it was a guarantee that I was going to get sick. Right. I'm tired by day two. Day three, I'll make it through. And it doesn't matter, like, how it was spread out. It was, like, within any seven-day period, if Uh. I worked more than 30 hours, I would get sick. I told this to the people who were hiring me. And I was like, it's fine if I can't be full-time. Like, I understand. You cannot give me more than 30 hours. And they have this schedule that they have to work with, with their boss. And their boss won't allow them to hire more people to fill out the schedule. And it becomes this big thing where they're like, we have to. And I I say, okay, I'm going to do it this week. Yeah. But please do not do that again. And I would get sick. And then this one time I got strep throat. It's a bad one, right? Yeah. And for most people, it's like terrible in general. Yeah. Me, I got some shit called Lemire syndrome, where the strep throat somehow sublimated from my throat into my lymph system, mm-hmm. and then I became infected throughout my whole body. I got a blood clot in my jugular, mm-hmm. and I was, I was once again close to dying. Yeah. And I ended up having to get a PIC line and being on antibiotics for like, you know, 30 days straight, and still having to work after that.
0: Days straight. Antibiotics. antibiotics
1: through this line in my arm three times a day at work having to do that you know what i mean like so now i have to take these breaks and all because like i have to make enough money to survive sure
0: sure that's what capitalism does
1: but also they have to give me hours and i can't i can't say too many times no stop or else they're gonna get rid of me, and they they'd be like, "Are you sure?" And I'm like, "I can work." And if I wasn't so good at my job, like I was so like I made myself literally indisposable to them, yes. doing things that nobody else could do. We're at a dispensary, but I'm working the front desk, and I'm doing all this filing, and I'm creating all these systems, and mm-hmm. you know, I'm making Excel sheets and spreadsheets, and you know, all this stuff that like people would do, but they would probably want to take the care and time to do it in such a nice way, and so making sure that I communicate with every single person that walks through the door so that mm-hmm. other people see me and they see people see, you know with
0: me Yeah, it's like you have to work on commission
1: Yeah without receiving commission not, Yeah <laughs> Just yeah. so they don't fire me for being sick yeah. <laughs> yeah. for needing to for not wanting to get sick right. for wanting to be able to work yeah. and it's like it's absurd you know just things like that yeah. wages are important and benefits and, like, universal healthcare happens everywhere. I'm sorry if you're one of those people that thinks that it's somehow going to really be an impetus on your life Mm -hmm. if we all get healthcare, because it's just not. We all need it. We all need to survive. You know, and we're not given, like, we're not allowed to learn the medicine for ourselves either like mm-hmm. it, there's so many blocks to be able to do self-healing anyway so we need this mm-hmm. and it's also being gate kept at the same time yes
0: there's <laughs> so many layers but you really scratched at like two or three of them right because <laughs> you know, everything is is connected everything is like again intersectionality right. is real yeah and people don't like to accept that fact because it's too hard
1: Here's a fun one. So after radiation, I really can't take sunlight like that anymore. Mm -hmm. I go to the park Mm -hmm. for an hour. I feel terrible. I need to take like a super long shower, get rid of the radiation. In an effort to get back healthy, I tell myself, you need to exercise some. Granted, like you're regaining motor functions, but you you don't have your breath anymore. I mean, you got your lungs irradiated. You got all kinds of stuff going on in there gotta exercise that. Do some aerobics. I don't want to go running at night because I'm afraid of your quote-unquote bad apple cops. I don't want to have to deal with it. I don't want to have to deal with the tiny little thing of like I'm jogging and there's some white woman on the street and she looks back and she's just terrified. I can't do it during the day. And that's like something so small and it seems arbitrary, but it's like wrapped up in all of these huge intersectional... (laughs)
0: so what's your disabled power Mm -hmm. what gives you the most agency within your disability
1: interestingly enough it's not the radiation sensory although i think in years to come it'll come in handy but that's like Mm -hmm. my doomsday theorist in me my power and what really like gets me feeling like okay you know what this was a terrible road but i came out with this Is being so in touch with my body when I am doing I have these these stretches that I have to do. I constantly like spitting up things like my my body underwent a lot of change and I have to like break that up now. Literally causes me to break up tissue in my you know shoulders and it so much stuff is connected. But being able to like see that connection between like oh I stretch out my shoulder there's less tension there. Suddenly I can breathe more mm. clearly through my you know through the nostril on that same side. being aware of those things and feeling that control, that like body control. I think I'm so much more in control of my body because I had to be. and there's a little bit of a lament like, oh, you know, when I was before this, I didn't have that control, man, if only, it's like all that stuff can be recovered. but this control that I have it's magic. It literally is magic. Like, nobody can take it away from me. Since all that, like, I refuse. I refuse to, like, accept anything but my own truth. And when I do, the universe and and my subconscious is like, no, baby, we're not doing that. Remember, we're not doing that. And, like, that feeling of fearlessness, of, like, uh, commitment, of, like... Just unapologetically, I am here. I'm gonna do me. Came out as trans. The strength to do that and stick with it. After all that shit, I'm like, you know what? I've been through it. I could take anything. Literally, I've been through it. What I need is what I'm gonna get. I have the strength to bring people in my life and take them out, and I have the strength to like set my own course. And that that is the that is the blessing of this experience. Now there's stuff I could do better than half these people out here. I understand Mm -hmm. something all these people don't even get. Mm -hmm. I can connect with other people in this way because, like, I get it. You're
0: way more adaptable now. It's
1: real, like, yeah. 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 And I'm hoping to teach people to do it without getting it, so I can get it without getting it. We'll see.
0: You are so fearless and I'm, I'm like, falling in love with it. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to say, like, we just went through so many like really hard topics. That's and real. And we did it with like a smoothness and an effortlessness. Smiling. And, yeah, laughing. Yeah. yeah. I really appreciate your disabled power.
1: We all have powers, but ours was awakened.
0: You may have heard taps during this episode and that's only because A Day was so passionate about what she was saying that she tapped on her desk for emphasis. I'm not gonna lie. Being sick and black is hard to live with. It's hard to communicate adequately with doctors. It's hard to get a competent diagnosis. It's even harder to prove you're sick to able-bodied people who just don't understand the experience of being disabled. I want to imagine a world where disability justice is a standard in schools of all levels, from middle school to high school and college, Medical school especially should have standardized disability justice-related work. I'll say it again until my face turns blue. Disability justice is for all. Got questions? Hit me up at powernotpity at gmail.com. If not, check out my website for all the updates and transcripts of this episode. That's powernotpity.com. I've got a Facebook account, Twitter, and Instagram at the same handle, power not pity, and that's all one word. The music you heard in this episode is from none other than Ade Raphael, also known as Ade Ra. Isn't she so talented? If you want to show her some love, go to her Facebook page at Ade Ra. That's all one word. A D E R A. If you like what you heard and want more, please check out my Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash PowerNotPity. Shout out to Sarah Slater, JB Bragger, and Michelle Ruffin for becoming patrons. Patrons receive exclusive content, especially early versions of each episode and videos about each episode. Think about becoming a patron. Not only will it keep this black disabled host alive, it'll guarantee that more episodes will follow. Also, please don't forget to hit subscribe and leave a review at Apple Podcasts. It's the best way for people to discover the show. And I promise, I promise, I'll read every review and blush about it. Thanks for listening. Power.